Timothy Dwight is the author. If you look at the top uh, left there, Timothy Dwight, I believe, if I am not mistaken, he is the man, he is one of the men who helped lead Henry Okaiya to the Lord. 188, I love thy kingdom, Lord. Henry Obakaya, who, who knows who Henry O was? Who knows why he was important? Who knows why he is essential? Who has no clue who is Henry O? That's not the difference between Henry O and O. Henry! Very different. All right. Okay, if you don't know who Henry O was after church tonight, ask any one of these kids that raised their hands. They all know. They've all studied Henry O. Yeah. 
back in the 1970s, there was a real emphasis on the second coming of Christ, and there were some people called the children of God. They were a cult in Kariohi, and uh, they believed that there was a comet coming called Kohotek, and you better leave and go to Australia because the comet's going to hit America, and so they had that very wrong uh, way of looking at that. But uh, we do believe the Lord's coming back. He might come back anytime, like the psalm says. And I hope you're ready. I hope you know the Lord, and I hope you do. And so, Jesus is coming again. It always, it always, it's going to be scoffed and mocked. But it is always going to happen, like the Bible says. He might come just on the wind. Let's come to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. Happened to meet Brother Adrian and his wife. Pastor, not Mrs. Pastor, but Pastor's wife. Not the first lady, but she is in a way. But from Kannapolis, North Carolina, the Charlotte area, so that's a blast to meet you. And uh, glad you dropped in tonight. Thanks for visiting our state. It has a few more dollars to the coffers. <laughs> Revelation chapter 2. Now, a short review from last week. I am going through Revelation. This will be my third time through it. A little bit different, a little bit more time spending in the words of this good book. And I want you to know that last week we talked about the Lord praised and commented uh, and expressed some appreciation for the church of Ephesus being a blessing, being faithful, a serving church, a working church. And he commended them for that. But then he also criticized them. In verse number four, he says, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. And then he says, and I'll skip verse 5 because verse number 6, I want to cover this. And I deliberately did not cover it last week because of the time needed to cover it. Verse 6, but this thou hast. This is still part of his commendation or praise. You've done this right. So he, he criticized them in verse um, uh, 5 and verse 4. But then he goes back in verse 6, but this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, we have a very controversial statement in verse number 6. The word is hate. Hate. Now, for the Christian who is uh, a young Christian, for the Christian who is uh, a Christian who has not heard anything in church except the love of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God, the long-suffering of God, and that's all they've heard, and sometimes churches are out of balance because they emphasize only one aspect of the morality of God, his moral attributes. Sometimes we, we get mixed up because what? God hates? God hates? I don't believe that. Because all that we've heard from church is that God loves. Now, we know that God loves us because we've spent time in First John, uh, several weeks now in Sunday school, and you have heard over and again that God loves us. So that is a part of him, of the Lord. But then a part of him also is he is righteous, he is just, and there are some things he does not put up with. And so he says, I hate, I hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Now he said to the Ephesian Christians, I want to compliment you folks for not putting up with the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Mm -hmm. He says, and I also hate them. I hate what they do. You Ephesian elders, the Ephesians at this church, you folks did the right thing to not tolerate what they're doing and what they're teaching because I also hate them. So that word hate is a real problem for a lot of people, a lot of Christians too. As I just said, 
for those who only hear one side about the nature of God. People will be offended by this word hate. People will be upset because of the word hate. Because we think of hate as in a human way. But really, if you think about this, because of our composition as a created being of God, a human made by God, we also have different emotions. Don't you love and don't you hate? Don't you love some things? Don't you hate some other things? That's just part of our makeup. And God has a perfect love and a perfect hatred. Yeah. And so he says over here, uh, you folks, you Ephesians, you hate the deeds of the neglect. Then he says, I'm not going to say right on. I'm not going to say that's cool. That's kind of like cheapening what is being said over here. But uh, we would say as talking to each other, you know what? God also hates that. And he agrees with us. Thank God he agrees with us. Maybe we agree with God that he hates the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Let's look at that tonight. Uh, that's the thing that he compliments them on. This is a curious thing. The church was rebuked for leaving their first love, and now he commends them for hating the deeds of the Nicolaitans. This is kind of odd. So we have to think carefully, and I'll tell you this. If you are steady in church, if you are not a church hopper, a church skipper, uh, and you're, you're in one church consistently, you get consistent teaching, and something like hate does not bother you because you have a you have a, 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 a history being in a church consistently that this is this is not just hate as we term hate, but this is something to do with unrighteousness and God being righteous and God in his nature loves some things and he hates some things. So the blessing of being in a church consistently, I'm talking about people who skip church and jump around all the time as a habit. They never anchor to a local church, they get all these conflicting teachings. As I say, all love, all love, all love, and then you come to a church that teaches the whole counsel of God in its context, and then you hear the word hate, and you say, oh, what is all this about? You're not shocked because you are under uh, a systematic way of learning the Bible. So this is not new to you, but for those who um, are not consistent in church, they might think this is odd thing, but it's not, because the Nicolaitans, let's identify who they are. Uh, many commentators say that the Nicolaitans derived from Nicholas in Acts chapter 6 verse number 5. Nicholas, one of the seven men chosen to be deacons in the first church in Jerusalem? I don't think so. But a lot of them agree with each other. They read each other. They agree with each other. They said it's Nicholas coming from him that eventually went a little bit off and uh, he was the founder of this wrong teach. I don't think so at all. There's no evidence for that interpretation. But it's a very popular interpretation. But just because something's popular does not mean it's true. And so, um, He's not the founder, I don't believe. There's no evidence for this. But what the what we do know is that the Ephesian church did not tolerate the Nicolaitans. They did not put up with them. And stronger word was, thou hast hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans. So what was it? What was the deeds of the Nicolaitans that caused the church to hate the teaching and for Jesus to say, I hate them too? What was it about the Nicolaitans? Well, uh, I'll give you a clue. Turn with me to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. This is a very revealing passage of scripture in Acts chapter 20 about human nature and about false teachings and how men within a church also creep in. Now in verse number 28, let me back up and give you some context for this chapter and get to my real point of this reference here. In Acts chapter 20, Paul is about to leave the Ephesian elders in the church forever. He would not come back again. It's a very tearful farewell. In verse number 20, he tells the Ephesian elders, verse 20, And how I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, 
but have showed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house. Paul says, I've taught you what I need to teach you. I've taught you all I can teach you. Everything that's going to help you as a Christian, as a church, to mature and grow and be like Jesus Christ. Now, in verse number 26, Wherefore, I take you to record this day that I am pure from the blood of all men. For the reason why he feels that he has a clear conscience before the Ephesians and before God is because he has not denied teaching them what he needs to teach them. Verse 27, For I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. Verse 28. After he tells them that, I'm leaving you forever. I have, I don't want to go. I'm going to miss you. But I leave with a clear conscience because I've taught you the word of God. I've been faithful to my ministry to you. I have no regrets. Verse 28. Take heed. Here's a warning. Therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock, over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, to feed the church of God. Feed them what? Feed what to the church of God? Feed what to the Ephesian church? He's talking about spiritual food. He's talking about feeding them the word of God. Which he hath purchased with his own blood. Very interesting word there, don't you think? It says that the church of God is purchased with his blood, God's blood. Which only, again, reinforced the truth that Jesus Christ was not only the Son of God, but God's Son. Now, verse 29, for I know this, here it comes, for I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. What is Paul saying here to the Ephesian elders? When I leave you, when I leave you, I know what's going to happen. He says, men from the outside, they're like grievous wolves. The image is very strong because grievous wolves have no pity, no compassion on their prey. They just tear them apart. They don't care. And they enter in among you. They'll come from the outside, outside of the church, traveling teachers, men who say that they're Christians, men who say they have a ministry from God. They're not going to spare the flock. They're going to come in and tear apart the flock with their false teaching. Now, the second thing he says, and here's the point, verse 30, also of your own selves. Now, this is a problem. First, he says in verse 29, from the outside, they're going to come. These false teachers, these ravening wolves, these grievous wolves, but then from among your own men. Verse 30. Also of your own selves shall men arise. Okay, this is a real serious thing. You would think that those who were taught by the Apostle Paul and mentored by him and discipled by him, they'll be faithful to what he taught them. He says, oh man, I hate to tell you this, but it makes me sick to tell you this. But when I leave, also of your own selves shall men arise. They're going to speak things that I didn't teach you. Speaking perverse things. Perverse things. To draw away disciples after them. Now, let me just stay here for just a minute because I want to give you some, some context and some, some, some foundation to this perverse things that they're saying because it connects directly to the Nicolaitans and what they are doing, what they will do after Paul leaves. Now, this perverse things... This tells me about the teaching. The word perverse is the problem here. Perverse, quote, turning aside, distortion from right, from the truth, from purpose. Distortion, changing. If the definition of something is this, perverse teaching is something that strays from what the definition is. Teaching that is away from what is the right way to understand something. 
perversion is a word that goes right along with perverseness. Now, when you think of perversion and perverseness, you must think about another book of the Bible. You must think about something else when it comes to perverse. Perversion, all right? We have a problem with this word because it is a descriptive word of behavior and thinking, thinking and behavior. Now, for a moment, turn to Romans chapter 1. I think you know the reference here, but let's take a look and see in connection to the Nicolaitans how their perverse teaching is as grievous as Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 is a biblical example of turning aside distortion from right, from truth, from purpose. Okay? Perversion. Perverse is turning from what is the intent of something. It is changing the intent of something to something else. So Romans chapter 1, look at verse 23. One thing good about going through the Bible, almost verse, verse by verse, is that it leads you to all kinds of different things that is connected to the primary issue at hand. And so when the word perverse comes up, it leads us to think about, well, what is the Bible definition or Bible example of perverse perversion is? Romans chapter 1 is that example. Verse 23. Uh, verse 22. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. In other words, people who think they're smarter than God, really, they're not. They're just really fools. It hasn't dawned on them yet. But what they do and what they think seems to them very wise, very smart, very right. Now look at verse 23. And changed, changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Now, the passage from verse 23 down to verse 31 is about changing what God intended to be right, normal, to wrong and abnormal. This is the perverseness, this is the perversion of something that God has made to be good and people have distorted because of their wicked hearts. Now come down to verse 25. The word change comes up again. Who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator was blessed forever, amen. Verse 26, for this cause God gave them up unto vile affections for even the women, they change, perverse, they change the natural use of that which is against nature. Verse 27, and likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burning their lust one toward another, men with men working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meet. And then look at verse 31. This is a summary here. Without understanding covenant breakers, without natural, the key word here is natural, without natural affection. Perversion is taking something natural and changing it to something else that's not the intent of that. Don't change it because this is how God intended it. Obviously, you know what he's talking about here. And so, go back to Revelation. These men who would rise up from Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 20, and then in Revelation 2, the Nicolaitans, they were teaching something 
Something that was right, but then they perverted it. Something that was, this is how it's supposed to be, but then they perverted it. They changed something like Romans 1 changed the, na the nature of some issues and some things. The Nickelodeons did this, Nickelodeons. Uh, these, these people, I said something funny that um, I have not seen for decades or never heard the word for decades. But these uh, Nicol Nicolaitans, they changed a truth into something perverted. They perverted, they changed it. What was that thing that got, got God to say, I hate you, I hate what you're doing? What got the Ephesian church to say, I hate that these are the Nicolaitans? God said, that's right, I hate them too. I hate what they're doing. What was it? What did they change? Well, the clue is found in, of course, Acts 20, about men would rise up among themselves and they would teach things contrary to what Paul taught them. So let's think about this a little bit more. The clue here is they persuaded men to follow them in their teaching. The Nicolaitans did. And uh, they're like grievous wolves. And I suspect that Paul sent that this is going to happen because of what he wrote. And so what is the problem? Well, the word Nicolaitan, Nico, means to rule, to conquer. Uh, Laos or uh, Laetan Laity, laity, you have to rule the laity. To rule the laity, you have here a situation which men talk that they are the ones that you come to to pray to to get to God. They, in essence, become like a mediator between men and God. They have exalted their position and promoted themselves so that you must come through a man to get to God. The doctrine of the Nicolaitans is wicked and evil according to God. He says, I hate this because it's abusive on two things. The word abuse, abuse, this is an abuse. This is an abuse on two things. Number one, it's an abuse. It's an abuse on something very fundamental to what a Christian is in relationship to Jesus Christ and to God the Father. It's an abuse of the priesthood. Of the believer. It's an abuse of this. Now let me show you a couple of verses that teaches that the New Testament Christian, he is a priest. What does a priest do? A priest in the Old Testament interceded for the people. Without the priest, you had no intercession to God in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, you know what you are as a believer? Besides being a child of God, Besides being adopted, besides being joint heirs, what are you besides? What are you besides these three basic fundamental things that you learn quickly as a new Christian? Well, let's take a look. Come to First Peter chapter two. The Nicolaitans' teaching is an abuse of First Peter two verses five through nine. We'll come to verse five. First Peter two five through nine. It's an abuse of, number one, the priesthood of the believer. Verse number five says in chapter two of 1 Peter, ye also as lively stones are built upon a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Now look at verse number nine. Verse number nine. But ye are a chosen generation a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. Now, 
The New Testament Christian is a priest. A priest can function like an Old Testament priest, but even better. He can go to God himself without the need of a, a man priest, a human priest, without going to a confessional booth to confess his sins. He can go straight to God without any uh, intermediary um, person in between. <laughs> <laughs> so we have God the Father, and I'm going to put the Son here, and I'm going to put you if you're saved. Mm. You can go straight to the Father through the Son. Amen. You don't need a priest. You don't have to go through him to get to God the Father. Okay? The Nicolaitans put themselves in this position. You got to come through us. Well, that's wrong. How wrong can that be? Very wrong. Now, here's something else that they have abused, the Nicolaitans. That's the first abuse. Um, but also, I want you to see uh, Hebrews chapter 4, and then I get to point number 2, the second thing that they have abused. Hebrews 4, verse number 14 and 15. A saved sinner can go directly to the Father through Christ. And the through Christ part is important because Hebrews 4, 14 and 15 tells us we go through Christ who is interceding for us. Verse number 14 says, Hebrews 4, 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. Verse 15. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. Aren't you glad about that? Whatever problems you have, whatever bothers you, you can go to him and he'll hear you. Amen. You know, one of the greatest things I heard a psychologist say, not, uh, in fact, this morning, a psychologist say, one of, the, one of the bad things about our culture is that there's people who have problems, but they have no one to talk to, no one to listen to them. And so they get all kind of, they go to the wrong, they go to the wrong people and because they're starving for people to just give an ear to listen to them. You know who we have in heaven listening to us when we pray? Jesus Christ. So verse 15, we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. The verse is telling us that Jesus Christ knows exactly what you go through, what you have gone through, what you will go through, because he's experienced all of it already. How is that possible? I don't know. But when he was on earth, when he walked as a man, he somehow experienced all the things that a man would possibly experience. And that's why he says now that he, you can come to him because he understands. He understands. He knows. Sometimes you talk to someone to do this. They're not listening to you. And then because they think they have a stock answer to give. But when someone is listening to you, you can tell they're paying attention to you. Right. Jesus Christ pays attention to your Amen. prayers, to your requests, to your concerns. Amen. Can you think of an idol that pays attention to you like the Lord pays attention to you? Can you think of a man that can pay attention to you like the Lord pays attention to you? Now, grandmas are good attention payers. Grandmas pay attention to the grandkids. Grandmas listen. Grandmas listen. It could be a small thing. Oh, what's wrong? Oh, oh. you know what grandpa does? <coughs> yeah, man. Come on. This is just the beginning of your pains in life. Here, let me help you. <laughs> no, grandma listens. She'll come down to their level and she'll listen and give them a hug. 
you know, in a way, in a way, this is to express that this verse tells us that the Lord says, I know about everything and you can come to me. Look at verse number 16. Let us therefore, because he hears, because he knows, because he cares, because he wants to bring, to hear your petitions, verse 16, let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace. Now wait, there's a comma there. And then it says that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What is not there after the word grace? Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, comma. What is missing there? Well, missing there is something like this. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, but you got to come through a priest. Then you can obtain mercy. See, that part is missing. You don't need a man, a priest, kind of a man, to initiate for you. The Nicolaitans are promoting themselves like that. And God says, that, I hate that. God says, I hate that. The Ephesian church says, that's not what Paul taught us. That's not what Paul taught us. Out you go. No, no, God said, out you go. So the Ephesian elders, to their credit, they got praise for this. They're not going to tolerate somebody teaching something like that. And the Lord says, I hate that too. Good for you. Way to go. I'm not done. So the Nicolaitans set up this. They set up a priest, um, a priest class. They set up a priest class. God, Jesus, there's somewhere. We are here, and you're down here. You gotta come to us because we're your priests. We're gonna intercede for you. Okay? You know that really offended God. He says, I hate that. I'm the one. I'm the one. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. What are you doing to knock me off my place? That's the essence of what's going on. Now, the second thing that they have abused, besides this very important priest of the believer, is number two. This is something that is taught in the New Testament. Paul and Peter talk about this. We'll look at two verses. I want to say at the very beginning that this part, this part here, is a it's a real pain in the neck to some women. Because they don't like a man saying no, no, no. They don't like a man telling a woman who wants to do something in church. No, you can't do that. No, no, no. Let me talk about that just a minute. Let's look at references. First Timothy chapter five. First Timothy chapter five. The Nicolaitans, they were abusive in this as well. There is a pastoral authority of a local church, pastor rule, and that word authority and rule <coughs> grieves those who don't like authority. 1 Timothy 5.17 says, Let the elders, elder is another word for pastor or bishop, let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they that who are they who labor in the word and doctrine. Do you realize what Paul is saying to Timothy? Paul is saying to Timothy, the elders should rule well. If they do rule well, they're worthy of double honor. Especially if they labor in the word and doctrine. 
especially if they are feeding the sheep. He says, they're worthy of honor. And as a matter of fact, he says, double honor if they labor in the work. If they spend time to feed the sheep. Now, if you go to a good restaurant, I don't know too many good restaurants. I'm just a simple, I like plate lunches myself. But if you go to a real nice restaurant, uh, you expect certain things. I've been to Roots Chris twice because of gift certificates or things like that. Twice only in my lifetime, Roots Chris. You ever been to Roots Chris? Yeah, it's really expensive, so we don't go normally. And when they see the bill, $100, what? Everything's a la carte. And so the, the gift certificate was like for $150. I said, man, I've never seen so much money spent on a dinner in my life. $150? Anyway, then I went to another one. It's uh, the Chart House. It's a fish place, I believe, or it used to be there. And it's the best fish I ever had. It didn't taste like fish. <laughs> it didn't taste like fish. It tasted like good white meat. <laughs> and so, uh, but, you know, they, they prepare it in a certain way so that you enjoy it. When the, when the man of God prepares a spiritual meal and does that, he says, and consistently, I think, uh, he's worthy of double honor, especially if they labor in the word and doctrine. So the elder rules, rules, rules. Well, you know what a ruler is? A ruler? You think about this, a ruler. A ruler, a ruler, Twelve-inch ruler. Okay, a ruler is a standard. It sets a standard for measurement. If you're going to measure something that is less than a foot or a foot, and if it's critical construction or something else, you're going to have that exact measurement. All right. Now, this is supposed to be a standard whereby you measure things by this, not by opinion, not by oh I think. I think. Now let me ask you this question. Well, uh, let's do it like this. Tell me, tell me how long you think this line is, that line, and that line. Now it's kind of a cheat because you have this now, right? But how many said this is 10 inches? 10 inches, okay? How many said this is about 6 inches? Okay. How many said this is about 5 inches? Yes. One, okay, now. You know how you're going to know if you're right? It's not because you said so. It's not because you insist that it's 10 inches or, or 6 or 7. You have to measure against this. We measure this against this, and we say, you're totally wrong. You came close, but you're a little bit short, a little bit too tall, a little bit too long. The standard corrects the opinion. The standard tells you if you're right or if you're not. The pastor rules, wait a minute now, before everybody gets upset, not you folks, but people may be listening. Now, the, before people get upset about this ruling matter, the elder is supposed to rule, set a standard, be a standard, be an example. Well, that's a heavy responsibility, but then that's just the way it is. And he is supposed to rule. I know, you don't like the word rule, but there's more to it than that. Come to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews 13. The Nicolaitans abused, abused, abused pastoral authority. Hebrews 13, 17. The other word that some women don't like is found in verse number 17. Hebrews 13, 17. 
obey, <laughs> obey, obey, obey them that have the rule over you. Submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls. This is a spiritual authority issue. This is not just obeying your husband in the home. This is in the context of obeying the one who is a rule over you in the church. Obey them that have the rule over you. Submit yourselves. Oh, obedience, submission. Boy, do we not not do we do we not hate that word? Do some women not hate submission and obedience, especially to a man? Well, you have to look at this in its context. This is spiritual authority, not dictatorship. There's a difference. Some Baptist pastors are dictators. They really are. You, you better not buy a car without asking them for their permission or okay. You better not buy a house. You better not do this. You better do that unless you first consult with them. You know, the, the spiritual authority here is, is spiritual. It's not about some things. Now, you can ask for his opinion. He might be giving it to you just as an opinion. People ask, well, what do you think about that? I say, well, my opinion is this. I just say it's my opinion. It's not a rule. It's not a law. I have no right to tell you what to do in your home. Now, I have some things from the Bible that's good for your home. If you ask me, you'd be glad, I think. But you do what you want to do. That's up to you. That's up to you. You want to fly to Vegas, spend all your money? That's up to you. But you'd be a fool to do that. You want to buy a, um, an EV car? You don't have the income to support it? You have to save something. You have to save the planet. You really think that? Well, it's up to you. I'm not going to tell you. I'm going to tell you my. If you ask for my opinion, I'll tell you. If you don't ask, I won't say anything. I just zip it. I have no authority over you. Now that sounds almost heretical among Baptist pastors, but that is the truth. Ask, and I'll give you my opinion, or I'll tell you a scripture principle, and I'll say to you, now look. I think your idea is bad. I think what you want to do, your motive is good, but the, the execution of it is a bad idea. Don't do that. You go broke. I'll tell you that. No, you shouldn't marry that guy. You shouldn't marry that girl. No, forget it. Not a good choice. Not a good choice. That's an opinion, but I have scripture to support. But I'm just simply saying, pastor rule is not dictatorship. And the way the Bible has been set up, the New Testament and a lot of Apostle Paul's writings is a ruling well is not anything but spiritual in connection to the Word of God. And he says also that we watch for your souls. And that is to say there's a spiritual responsibility uh, pastor to the church, pastor to the people, and you would do well to at least consider what he says. Because he may be right some of the time. Some of the time he's wrong. But some of the time he's right. Now, uh, God said about the Nicolaitans, um, he hates them and because I think that they have usurped his authority over the saints and they have placed themselves in that position. And the head of Christ is for the church, not for man to be the head of the church uh, or board or headquarters or denominational setup. Uh, this does not eliminate the pastor's role, it, it strengthens it and it should be there and a church has biblical structure. A church has biblical structure. The pastor is the leader of the church. He's not the boss. He's not 
enough uh, dictator, but he is the root of the church. And again, with what Peter says, I didn't show what Peter says. This is to help you to see, ruling is not a bad thing. Look at 1 Peter chapter 5. Those who think the pastor is a dictator and we should never listen to him because he's a man, they are totally unaware, ignorant, I would say, of what the Bible says. 1 Peter is a good scripture to go to about the balanced view of what a pastor is and should be. 1 Peter chapter 5. The things we get into when we look at Revelation is kind of amazing. The different directions it takes us. Because it connects to the whole Bible. 1 Peter chapter 5 verse number 1. Now you see from this passage that a pastor is not a dictator, not a CEO, he is not a mean tyrant, he's really a pretty good guy. Verse 5, verse 1. The elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Verse 2. Feed the flock of God, which is among you. All right, a real responsibility of the pastor is to feed the word of God to the people, spiritually, spiritual responsibility. Taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind. It's not about the money. Verse 3. Neither as being lords, I did say twice now that the pastor is not a dictator. It comes from verse number three. Neither as being lords over God's heritage, it's God's church, but being examples to the flock. I did say earlier that the pastor is supposed to model what a Christian ought to be. A very sobering, humble thing to realize. Verse four. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, Ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. Verse 5. Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Younger elders submit to the older elders, older by experience and older by age. There are some young pastors who think because they've gone to Bible school, they got all A's in their courses and they ace the homiletics and the hermeneutics and everything, and they got all, you know, flying all great stuff, and they come into a church, get out in the field, and they think they know everything. And they won't subject themselves to an elder who is a little bit more seasoned than he is. And he's going to be there and tell him what to do. He says, submit yourselves unto the elder. So there's order. There's order. There's order. Yes. Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. How can, how can a pastor rule well who is worthy of double honor, one who follows and has these qualities in him, how can he be viewed as an enemy? He's not an enemy to anybody. And I have a generic woman here in mind, representative woman who just doesn't like authority. And they go to the church, a church that has pastor rule in it, it has structure to it. And the woman who is used to doing what she wants to do, doing what she wants to do. And then she meets somebody in a certain church that says, wait a minute, you can't do that. Well, just who do you think you are? We're all in Christ, the love of God, and all that kind of thing. And they go on with this, you know, this, this not even reasonable thing. They just don't want to submit. I want to say this today, um, in light of the Nicolaitans and 
the side teaching here is that it's good to have pastor rule, it's good to have authority, it's good to have structure, and that man is to be clothed with humility, not thinking that he's the cat's meow, or he's the all knowing all. And so, for God resists the proud and giveth grace unto the humble. Verse number six, let me finish this part here. Humble yourselves, therefore, elders, those of you who rule well, humble yourselves. There's nothing worse than an arrogant pastor. There's nothing worse than a cocky, high-minded, nose-in-the-air man of God. There's nothing worse than that. I saw a, v a YouTube video. <laughs> this is so funny, but it's sad. A YouTube video. This was in church in o uh, Missouri, Oklahoma. I'm not sure which one now. But uh, he was preaching, and the, the camera was on him, and then somebody's phone went off. This is what happens in our church once in a while. You ever, did it happen to you, phone go off? I don't know what you do, but I just stop and wait for the thing down and people scramble to turn red, you know, and they, and they look at somebody else like it was their phone. <laughs> the phone went off and they're so embarrassed. This pastor in this church, oh man, he got upset. He stopped. And he pointed to that place where the phone rang. He pointed to somebody. He says, that's your phone, sir. Your phone go off just now. And he got all over his case. It's all, all do. He walked out to him. He took his phone. He threw the phone on the road, and on the, it was a bare concrete floor. He threw it down, and he stepped on it. I could not believe that. But he did it. He had to show he was in control, that he was the ruler. You know what he just showed? He's not humble. That's what he just showed. He's not fit. In that moment, he's not fit. There's no humility. There's another one. It's a guy, um, a couple is about to get married, or they're engaged, and he was going to constantly get married and so on. And there's the guy with missing church, this guy back over with missing church, this young guy. And uh, this is that state, I think it was Missouri. And he, he was talking about something, and he used him for illustrations. Now, you, 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 you here, brother, you here. Stand up. He walked up to him, stand up. He says, and you, you've been missing church the last three weeks. Something like that. And he says, and you want me to marry you? Why, wow, you sorry Christian. This is all public now. You sorry Christian. I would marry someone like you, missing church like that. And then he goes up to him and says, look at me. I love you. <laughs> you know I love you, don't you? And the man says, yes. what can he say? And he goes back. Now see, that kind of stuff is like, ah, man. That, that's why people get upset with pastors who act like they're that's right. God. That's right. So a man who is how he's supposed to be, he's not an enemy. He's actually a friend. He's actually a friend. And so, there is an abuse from the Nicolaitans on those two points. The abuse of the believer has to overboard. They went overboard. You've got to have me to go to God. No. No, no, no. Now, it says here that God hated their deeds. In, uh, go back to Revelation. I'm going to go through some other verses, and I may just read it for the sake of the time, but I want you to know that there's some verses about God hating some things. God hating some things. And this is to counter a notion that God should never hate anything or anybody. And that's from a person who says, all they hear about is love, 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 love. But there's another side to the whole issue. It's called balance. Now here's the balance of the issue about love and hate. Because God said he hated their deeds, strong word, and the Bible has a context to the word hate. God does not hate unreasonably, but I want you to come to Psalm 45 very quickly, and I'll read it, 
whether you find it or not, but I want you to look at Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7. We're going to find some words where, some verses that tell us that God does hate. And we'll come across a verse that says, God hates the person. Believe it or not, not only does God hate the evil, but he hates the evildoer. Let's see. Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. Verse 7. Thou lovest righteousness and hatest wickedness. Well, that makes sense to me. God is holy. He loves holiness. He hates unholy things. All right? Now, Proverbs 6, 16, a more common verse. Proverbs 6, 16 says, These six things doth the Lord hate. Yea, seven are an abomination unto him, a proud look, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. I wonder if that is a reference to abortion in prospect. Hands that shed innocent blood. I wonder if that's about doctors who kill babies in the mother's womb. I wonder if it's about women who have a child and uh, now they don't want it. I wonder if that's referencing that in prospect. Now, he wasn't talking about abortion specifically, but that reminds me of abortion. It is the killing of a life within a mother's womb. A heart that deviseth wicked imaginations, feet that be swift to running to mischief, verse 19, a false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord among the brethren. God hates some things. That's what you're learning. Now, in Jeremiah 44, do not go there. It's a long chapter. It lists all the things against Judah. And God has spelled out very graphically what he's going to do to them because of their sin. It has offended him. He hates what they've done. Jeremiah 44. Well, now look at Psalm chapter 11. Psalm chapter 11, verses 4 through 7. This passage shows us that God hates, God also loves. The Lord is in his holy temple, verse 4. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids try the children of men. Verse 5. The Lord trieth the righteous, but the wicked and him that loveth violence his soul hateth. Verse 6. Upon the wicked he shall rain snares, fire and brimstone, and a horrible tempest. This shall be the portion of the cup. You realize what you just read there? God is saying here that because God hates unrighteousness and wickedness, he will do something to them as punishment. Now, I'm not going to say that every time a hurricane comes by, uh, like that natural disaster is because of God's wrath. I'm not going to say that, but I'm going to say it's possible. It could be, but I'm not saying everyone is. I don't know that, but I just know that he says he will punish someone for their wickedness. He hates unrighteousness. Verse number seven. For the righteous Lord loveth righteousness. Okay, that's pretty clear. It's pretty graphic. Here's another one I'd like you to look at. Psalm chapter five. Psalm chapter 5. This reference says that God does hate the evildoer. Have you ever heard God loves the sinner, doesn't love the sin? It's a very common prison term. Yeah, God hates the sin, but he loves the sinner. We've all heard that. Let's see what the Bible says. Psalm 5, verse 4. For thou art not a God that hath pleasure in wickedness, neither shall evil dwell with thee. Verse 5. The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. Verse 12. For thou, Lord, wilt bless the righteous, 
with labor without compass him as with a shield. You have just read that God hates the wicked doer, beside the wicked deeds. Now, how do you understand that? I'm not sure, but that's what it says. That's what it says. How, how, how dare we tell God what he should not feel? How dare puny little insignificant man tell God, my opinion is you should never hate anybody? That's wrong. What kind of God? Who are we to tell God that? We are so, so sinful. How, we want things our way. God says, I'm sorry. I don't like that. I hate that. And I hate the person who does that. Now let's think this through. I said once earlier, do we not all love and hate at the same time even? Do you not have the capacity to love something so strongly? Do you not have the capacity to hate something so strongly as well? Sure you do. Look, there are some crimes that I cannot mention because I just should not mention it, but we all understand that there are some crimes committed that are so horrible that you just don't even talk about it. You know Mao Zedong was a very evil man. You know that he starved his people. You know that people, oh, and Stalin too, Stalin ruled for 30 years. He was very evil. You thought Hitler was bad, Stalin was very horrible. But Mao Zedong, he was evil too. He let his people starve to death. And there, there's anecdotal, when you bring things down to the neighborhood level, you begin to understand the big picture awfulness of things. When you say 30 million people died, that doesn't mean a whole lot. But when you say this neighbor, this neighbor at the very, um, I, I cannot, because of policy, it's just horrible people. You, can you love that? Can you say, can you say honestly, you know, I'm a Christian, God bless, God, God. No, you, you, you're upset. You think God is not upset about all these kind of things too? This, the police in our community, Brother Stan doesn't tell me everything that he does on the duty, but uh, I'm sure that there are things that he sees that he wish he hadn't seen when he's working on his shift. Um, there are things that you should never even be exposed to because it's so, it's so horrible, it's so bad, it's so sinful. You cannot love everything in this world. For someone to say, I love, I hate nobody, I hate nothing, you are, you are a, really an ignorant, Bible illiterate person. You just don't know what God said. And so, what we have so far is that God says about the Nicolaites, I hate their deeds. You hate them too, good for you. And I hate them too. God went so far as to say, I hate the people that commit these things. Serious, serious stuff. Um, don't let our opinions supersede what God said. Be careful about that. Be careful about that. Well, here's what this means. Number one, there's a context and a balance to love and hate. There's a context in the Bible. You're going to have balance about these things. Uh, don't be extreme. Don't be like the Nicolaitans. Don't go overboard. Don't go overboard. Number two, the concept of love and hate. Um, the, your concept, my concept of love and hate is not the authority. The Bible is the authority. My opinion is just an opinion. Your opinion is just an opinion. Your friend's opinion is just an opinion. No matter how big the mouth is, it's just an opinion. It is not authoritative. It's just a guess. It's just an opinion. It's not that. Number three, here's what this means. 
Because you don't accept what the Bible says, doesn't mean you are right. That's what that means. Because you don't get it, it doesn't mean the Bible is wrong. It doesn't mean you're right because you don't get it. Number four, you're not to be hateful to sinners or anyone. Don't hate people just because the Bible says, I hate this. Like, you might know people that are doing bad things. You, you gotta be careful how you treat them, how you talk to them. You have to have some common sense and some wisdom to not talk to them as if you are God talking to them. There might come a time in which you have a chance to show them and explain to them, that's fine. But don't make an enemy, don't be an enemy unnecessarily to people, okay? It's not a wise thing to do. Now, um, how did the Ephesian church turn down the Nicolaitans? I have a clue. It comes from the book of Jeremiah, and then after this, we're going to wrap it up. Jeremiah chapter 5, verse number 30 and 31, gives us a clue as to how the, how the Nicolaitans got into, and how the Ephesians, uh, in, in Pergamos especially, and not so much the Ephesian church, but the church of Pergamos. And here's how it was going on. Jeremiah 5.31, in a different context, but the truth is there. Jeremiah 30 says, a wonderful and horrible thing is committed in the land. Verse 31, the prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests bear rule by their means, and my people love to have it so. What will you do in the end thereof? You know why the Nicolaitans prospered in another church in Pergamos? Because like in Jeremiah, the people loved to have it so. They tolerated it. They let it go on. They didn't stop it. There was no man in the house. Everybody was a woman, figuratively speaking. Now, now you're going to get mad, see? No, no, don't take it that way. There wasn't someone to say, stop. There's no one to rule things. And, and so in Jeremiah, the people love to have it so, love to have what so? Love to have the priest rule them. Love to have the priest rule them. As I close tonight, uh, you have it. The context of why he hated the Nicolaitans and the deeds. Is there an organization, a church today, that has a hierarchy like that where you must go to a man to get to God? Or go to someone else to get to God? Is there a church like that around? It's been around for a long time. The biggest church around. Although Islam might be passing them. Roman Catholic. Roman Catholic Church. You can't hate the people. You can't hate the priest. You can't hate the Pope. You can't express that to people. You can't believe them to Christ. But this is wrong. It's an, it's an, an example of Nicolaitan doctrine. Priest class over the lay people, laity, priesthood. The Pope is supposed to be the professional, the expert. You're supposed to be in the pew, the ignorant, common man. That's the laity. The Nicolaitans were up here. Come to me, now what a God for you. Come to me for your answers, da 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 da. No, every Christian has the privilege to go to God himself, read the Bible for himself, to learn for himself, and I'll close with this. It doesn't mean that you and I cannot get some, some help in understanding this. It doesn't mean you can't ask someone to pray for you. It doesn't mean that at all. Just avoid the extremes of it. You can be praying right now. Lord, I hope he's done. You can be praying right now uh, about a lot of things while you're doing different things. You don't have to call anybody else. You don't have to call some professional priest to pray for you. 
Confess your sins to God yourself. You can do that. And if talking to another Christian to help you along, that's fine too. Okay? There's no extremes here. Avoid extremes. Either or. Avoid that. The secret of the Christian life is balance. Alright? Balance. Love some things. Hate some things. Love the Lord thy God. Love not the world. Balance. Love your family over some other kid's family. Some other person's family. Take care of your family over somebody else's. Your family comes first over other families. Balance. Balance. Good to go to church, but you don't have to go to church every 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 day, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. There's, there's gotta be some balance. You gotta go to work, you gotta sleep, you gotta have a lot of things gotta be done besides going to church. It's, have balance. I gotta stop with this one. What's your favorite food? I don't know. I know what mine is. Mine is rice with Japanese curry steak meat. Mm. Carrots. When you're very hungry, that is so good. Anything in gravy I like except from a Chinese restaurant. I don't trust them. I don't trust where the gravy came from. But you gotta eat something else besides curry, Japanese curry, and rice. What do you eat for breakfast? Oh, I like pancake. But I can't eat pancake every day. I like I like grits. I like oatmeal, but I can't I can't eat oatmeal every day. It makes me sick to eat oatmeal every day. I only look like some vegetarian. You gotta have some protein. So you gotta have variety. You cannot be just one, 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 one. Have some balance, all right? Nicolaitans, out you go. Not gonna have you do that, teach this around our church. No. No. Wrong. I hate that. Wow, you Christians down there, IBC folks, so you talk about love, but you hate people all the time. No, we can't be hateful, but we can't tolerate everything to this wrong. Balance, 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 okay? All right, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the time we've had in the Bible. Thank you for the prayer time. We do pray once again that you take of all the different spiritual needs and health needs that people have. And we pray, Father, that you would help us to trust you. And then help us, Lord, to be biblical in our thinking, in our living, how church is. Help us, Lord, to understand authority. Help us to understand the abuse of authority. Help us to love the things that you love and hate the things that you hate. May we have the sense to not give the air the appearance that we hate people because we disagree with them. We should not be that way. But Lord, there are some things that are right, some things that are wrong. Just help us to have sense not to unnecessarily offend people, drive them away from the gospel. But Lord, if the truth offends people, then uh, we would have to kindly speak the truth in love. So Lord, give us wisdom. Thanks for the word in Jesus' name. Amen.